don't want it to be checklisty, but like maybe there is a sort of like, I see you within three years if you're able to master this skill or this programming language or this competency or show more EQ in this area. Like these are the things I would want to see in order to feel like really confident recommending you for a promotion. There is a level of like, you know, checklisty things, but keeping it nebulous to the fact that there is a little bit of room for like serendipity or for them to like take on a different project that comes up that we can't predict. And so it fills in to some extent. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health. And this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. When people join companies, they always want to know what the path is to a career trajectory. It's always hard if it doesn't feel like it's visible or transparent. Maybe if they don't have the insight into what it takes to get to that next level. Essentially, everyone always wants to get better every single day. And so Nicole Miller, head of People Ops, she sat down with Sam Korkos, co-founder and CEO of Levels, and the two of them discussed what it takes to have a very visible or very transparent way of creating levels within the org. What do people need to do to get to that next level? What are some of the skill sets that they need to have and how can they think about the different criteria? Essentially, everyone wants the same thing. People want feedback, they want honesty, they want transparency, and at the end of the day, they want a path to progression. Anyway, it was a good conversation to go into people ops. Here's one on culture. On the topic of leveling and promotions, it's kind of the, the main topic that I've been thinking about. It's a tricky one. I did a little bit of exploration in the document that you saw. There are, there's definitely a tension and I'm, I'm pretty sure this is another one of those things where there are no good answers. There's only knowing what trade-offs you're making and then being okay with them. I, I ended up reading a bunch of articles. Some of them were actually quite popular articles about people railing against promo culture. Google's sort of the quintessential example where people who work there complain about how much of the culture is just about getting that next promotion. Mm -hmm. And it's not really about providing value to people. It's just about the internal politics. Um, but what's interesting is that when I hear or read about what some of these people propose to solve promo culture, they're basically proposing an adjustment in human nature. It's like people just shouldn't want that and they shouldn't want more money and they should just be happy with their role and not want to be promoted. It's like, well, that's probably a losing proposition if that's your starting point. So I, I wonder, I think it is, it's reasonable for people to want more money. It's reasonable for people to want to see progress. Mm -hmm. If you make the progression too, um, if you make it too rigid or you make it too goals based, then you, I think this is one of those categories that inevitably runs into Goodhart's law where they just, 
if you try to quantify it too much, you're going to have people who maximize those metrics, but totally miss the point of the entire role. Um, and I don't, I assume that there is a way to align promotions with positive outcomes, but I, I struggle somewhat to figure out how to do that in a first principles way, rather than just like an amalgamation of arbitrary uh, criteria that I think are important. So I don't know. Those are just some of my top level thoughts. I don't know what your experience has been. Yeah, I'll give some background because I saw at, at Buffer, we started out with a very general like, universal framework. Um, and then it got very detailed and very specific based on each department. And um, what, like, for example, our customer support uh, team, like they had a framework that was very granular it even it was so specific of like you have to complete 35 tickets in one week or very specific amount for each level and then we also broke it out with steps so there were like six or seven levels and then five or six steps in between and so you know normally you would get like two steps as a promotion but that was like four or five thousand dollars a year which is like very small and and you know it was very tricky in some way and um and we did have that really like dense promo culture where every time someone got a step increase, we announced it and we eventually stopped doing that. And we then we did levels like announcements, but then we even got away from that because it just, and titles were all misaligned and it was very strange. Um, it was almost more work to keep up on that than it was to actually review promotion. <laughs> you know, it was just very different. And so, and what we also saw were a lot of people getting so fixated on the exact step they needed to do just to get to the next step that again, yeah, exactly. They totally missed what the company actually needed. And then when the company like was responding to slower growth or if we had a lot of departures and so people had to fill in different things, our frameworks became instantly out of date and instantly wrong. And then when we updated our frameworks, we got a lot of complaints and frustrations around people feeling like we were moving the goalposts for them to get a promotion. And the idea for me, and, and something that I'm very sensitive to, is um, the idea of moving the goalposts, because I think that that really makes people feel um, like they don't have control over it. Um, and yet there also should be a healthy amount of, no, you don't really have control over it because it has to relate to business goals and business progress. And so there needs to be that sort of very blatant paradox of we'll give you some guidelines but at the at the same time a lot of this is even outside our control and so that's my inherent like frustration around like really concrete um levels and so i generally like i loved the fact that we, <laughs> yeah that we have like six here or i think seven might be max um in general um and i don't think that it might be or i do think it might be worth like looking at like steps in between or like one step in between, like a half step so that there's like a little bit of progress and then some flexibility with saying you're level 3.5, but the next step would be a four with this sort of time and, and general concept. So maybe it's like a little bit of a change in that direction, but I don't want to, I, I think anything further, I, I just, I've seen become very checklisty and just tick the box and, um, and that can just, it, I, I think they, it gamifies in a bad way. Like then people tend to become obsessive about it. And I think that having it more opaque is good for the 
individual, it's harder for managers. And so then the burden goes back to managers and, and arming them maybe with the, the knowledge and the confidence to know and, and to rate people um, without that checklist. Um, so yeah, those are, those are my kind of, thoughts. there's, there's a lot there, but um, I, I think, I think it's definitely ripe for at least clarifying and maybe adding in that one extra step. I know Way said that the three and four is a big gap. And so perhaps there's something in that respect or like maybe a half step, but I would just suggest really small changes right now. And then seeing if we can't, you know, see where that takes it. Yeah, the the background of how how we ended up with the system that we have, which is it was originally just five levels. And mm -hmm. then we had a theoretical sixth level, but we didn't have anybody that really met what we had for the criteria there. Mm -hmm. And then as the company grew, once we hit about 50 people, it became pretty clear that we actually do have a sixth level and people do match that. And so we move people into that capacity. Um, the way that we ended up here, and I think there's, I think there's some truth to it. This was largely Andrew's idea. Um, his idea was that you want to make sure that promotions between the levels are sufficiently large that there's no ambiguity between the two. It really prevents the people automatically getting promoted. Yeah. And like there are examples that I can think of within our company where like somebody thinks that they should get a promotion and we look at the criteria and it's like they're on track for it but they're not there yet. Yeah. And it's it's kind of obvious. Maybe they don't see it, but it's kind of obvious from the outside. Yeah. And uh, the reason is that because the jump is so large, it's pretty easy to see the difference. Now, the challenge is that I had a really good conversation with somebody who was early at what is now a very large tech company. One of the things that he said, they he regrets not giving people a clear understanding of what a career path looks like at this company. And they lost most of their best engineers from the early days because they felt like they just hit a ceiling. And he didn't think that they did because he knew behind the scenes what actually happens, but there was no clarity. And so he said, if he could go back in time to when they were 50 people, he would have made it really explicit what the career path is in how people get to each level and approximately how long that takes, making mm -hmm. sure people know what, what the trajectory is. So yeah. I took some notes in the document with some like theoretical ideas, um, mm -hmm. maybe working backwards from human behavior is uh, how often do people need a feedback loop of like, yes, I'm on track to yeah. the next thing and how often should those promotions to the next thing happen and like often often is kind of an arbitrary thing like years of experience as a very rough proxy for people's mm -hmm. actual abilities so i don't want to index too heavily on that but maybe if we just say like if on average a level three has five years and on average a level four has eight years mm -hmm of experience, then we can say, on average, it takes three years 
to get from a level three to a level four. And like coming up with a, a way of telling people like you're halfway to getting that or you're three quarters of the way towards the next promotion. Um, I don't know what the best way to articulate that is, um, but where the system that we have now, people basically feel like they have no feedback on how far away am I from my next goal. And if, if that feedback loop is call it three years, like people say like, yeah, you're doing great. And you kind of have to take on faith that the system actually works yeah. when you're at a company for three years and then you get a promotion. Because mm -hmm. in tech, like most people are only going to be here for two years. That's yeah. the median tenure of people. So I think we should take that as the assumption. And so saying like it takes about three years to go from a level three to a level four, it's almost the same thing as saying like, you're never going to get promoted here. You'll probably leave to get your next promotion. Yeah. So um, figuring out how to make it really clear in a way that is high trust of like giving that progress indicator because it's uh, this is one of those problems where nothing happens. If, if you have the current levels that we have now, there's nothing. You have like verbal feedback, but nothing actually changes until something very large changes. And that might be like a year after you've left. So uh, yeah. that's, that's like the articulation of the problem space. I don't really have a good sense of what the solution should look like. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Um, a lot of the engineers that I've worked with, um, I'd say most all of them expected promotions within like one year too. Um, and, and so I think that's an interesting piece of it. And that's where, that's where we had a million steps to try to like give them incremental pieces in between. Um, and so I toyed around a lot with the idea of like the performance or project-based bonuses where it's not adding to that framework in that way or that levels, um, or there's other ways to like monetarily or like values based, like, a you know, give them a value of something in the midst of that, um, because it is really interesting. And, and I think you're right. It, it's funny because I think this comes back a little bit to the ego thread that Ms. was mentioning in the books because they're, and it's not that you have high ego if you want a promotion. It's absolutely natural to like, again, move forward. You want to feel like you're recognized for your efforts too. Um, but there, there's that weirdness of like coming across like too egotistical for asking a promotion or someone who doesn't have enough confidence to ask, even if they should. And and that's such a tricky thing in and of itself. Um, it's like addressing that or calling that out as um, another potential piece of it so should you build the system to where it catches everyone on both sides of it and and yeah i think that's really interesting i would note that when i think about pro the type of culture that we want to avoid call it promo culture mm -hmm. um i like you said i think where people get mixed up they think that anytime people talk about promotions it is therefore promo culture mm -hmm. i think that's just not correct i think Everyone wants recognition and money. And so to design any system 
that assumes that is not true is folly. Yeah. So there's a, a famous quote from the Federalist Papers. I think this is one of James Madison's where he says, if men were angels, we wouldn't need government. So <laughs> you shouldn't start with the assumption that yeah. everyone is going to be nice to each other. And if you build a system like that, you end up with a lot of these utopian ideologies that end up killing tens or hundreds of millions of people yeah. because they're based on a set of assumptions that are not true. Yep. Um, yep. And I think maybe a fair definition of promoculture is one in which the promotions themselves are an external signal of recognition and validation, and they are publicly celebrated. And that, that title change is received as part of that status symbol, uh, as opposed to something that's more internal. And I think in our case, because, because titles are, are private, people's levels are private, Somebody's title on LinkedIn is something like, it's just the department. It's like product. It doesn't say staff product manager or senior vice president of something. It's just the department. It is internal. It is an internal signal of the recognition that they do really high quality work. And we don't want to build a culture that uh, this ties back to a conversation that I had with Mark Randolph from Netflix. And one of the things that he mentioned in the podcast that I did with him is that people notice what you celebrate. Mm -hmm. And so if you celebrate, look, somebody just got a promotion. Now everybody wants that thing. And uh, if you celebrate people taking responsibility, if you celebrate people who have difficult conversations, yeah. if you celebrate different things, people notice that and then they reflect that back to you. So, um, I think we are less at risk of promo culture just because we don't have that same sort of status signaling. Um, but there's still something that feels like it feels like we're still missing something in the feedback loop of mm -hmm. uh, the uh, I was talking to somebody on the team not too long ago who said they they're frustrated. They don't care so much about what their current level is but they're frustrated in that they feel like they're in a Kafka-esque system where they don't know what they need to do to get to the next level, and they don't know how far along they are on the progression to get to that next level. They just feel stuck. And so I think there's a big difference between saying, like, you're a level two, mm -hmm. and it usually takes two years to go from a level two to a level three. We're just throwing out arbitrary numbers. And maybe each uh, performance cycle we do, we can give them some indication on how far along they are towards that path. And if those cycles are every six months, then that would be something like you're a level 2.5. You're halfway there. It's only been six months. You're already halfway there. Yeah. Like that is, that is how much confidence we have, or it's been six months and you're still a level two. You're actually not on the path towards getting a promotion. Um, and I don't know if that incremental increase comes mm -hmm. with a compensation increase, or if it's more of like just a recognition, uh, I'm, I'm actually kind of fine with either way, but I think what people are really seeking is recognition that their contributions are valued and that they have a path forward. Is that, is that a fair statement? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I hear this a lot. Um, and one of the things we built into um, performance reviews was a very explicit, like, this is the level you're at and this is what you need to do to the next point. Um, I also asked um, teammates in their self-review during the performance review cycle, what level do you feel like you are at? And it was interesting because those would come in independently. And so the manager would say, I think they're at a level three. And the person would say, I'm a level four. And it's like, red alert, alarm, let's talk about this. That sets up your difficult conversation framework right away. So my identity is this and your identity is this. Um, right. And so That's I good. liked that because it would, because usually the way it came in, it was independent. You wouldn't, the manager wouldn't see that person's response and, and vice versa until you hit the button or whatever. And so that could be a useful check-in even, um, you know, just to have you self-report like what what you feel at or why. And then you can always add in um, as part of that self-reflection, you know, part of the performance review. And here's why I think that. And it might bring up things that the manager didn't know or wasn't aware of or something too. So we can build in that part of the process. I think what I'm hearing is that there's just some good, I think there's some potential extra structure in manager training to get to the point where this is easily to, it's it's easier for managers to communicate because they feel confident in that assessment. And then it's easier for the manager to communicate that to the individual and for the individual to know or where to go to look for that sort of an update. Um, I think at least every six months is good, if not quarterly. Um, some people want it more often, you know, others don't. So there, there might be a case for managers um, Maybe for teammates, they know need it more often. Maybe they do it on a quarterly basis and maybe others don't. Like there's some preference I think you can build in there until it gets to a certain scale. But um, I think that just really having that explicitly stated in some form of documentation that's shared, that's viewable, um, that can set, solve a lot of things. And then being able to like have people ops go in there and audit it and check and make sure it and like follow up on those conversations, I think is another like follow-up step to that. I think another um, piece of it is probably helping mediate those instances where someone does feel like they were misleveled or that, you know, that they really just aren't seeing eye to eye with the manager in that sense. Um, but yeah, I think there's, I think there's some definite pieces we could add into the existing like performance rating system to difficult conversations and ratings and leveling and, and all of that and manager training and, and manager training is definitely like the highest on my list right now, because I think that 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 is what scales. If you concentrate on that group of individuals, then that really helps. Yeah, for sure. Especially if we can do as much of it as possible in the form of content, because that scales really well. Yeah. I do wonder, just putting on like my, my product hat, assuming that I am, I'm building a leveling and promotion product mm -hmm. for people who work on a team. If I'm doing user research, I'm mm -hmm. imagining I am interviewing people and what is it that they want out of a leveling system? And I think a lot of it has to do with reducing ambiguity. Yeah. Um, I think this ties back to the earlier comment I made about uh, knowing what the career trajectory is mm -hmm. and not feeling stuck and not feeling like you don't know, you don't know how to get to wherever it is you want to go. 
I imagine some people are probably perfectly comfortable in their roles and are not seeking to get a promotion. And that's totally okay. But I think for people who are more ambitious, that's totally reasonable. Like Mm -hmm. ambition is not something that is bad. Um, And getting promotion is not something that's bad. Like I, I would love to, I I would love for people to meet the criteria that Mm -hmm. allows me to give them a promotion. If people continue to, uh, to deliver, I want to give people more money and responsibility. That would be amazing. So um, there's no misalignment there. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the misalignment is only when somebody has a set of expectations that are either unrealistic or not based in reality. And like you said, surfacing those is a big part of manager training. It's like if somebody says, I think that I'm performing at a level X, mm-hmm. but they're actually something in X minus N. And uh, I, I wonder how much of that is also could be handled by some sort of incrementality, which is like I, somebody who's a level two saying that I, I think that I'm, uh, let's assume we, we do that, we split it into quarters. Mm-hmm. So like, I think I'm a, I'm a level 2.75, meaning they think that they're pretty close to getting a promotion mm-hmm. because they are, they've been delivering consistently what is expected of a level three for some time. Mm-hmm. Um, and their manager says like, no, you're a level 2.0. Mm-hmm. Like perfectly happy to have you here as a level two, but you're still quite a ways off mm-hmm. from getting that promotion. Um, some way of so I know, uh, I don't know if you talked to Miz about this at all, but uh, at Uber, they had a rating system that was, on the one hand, it was like your, I forget exactly what, what uh, mechanism they use, but imagine like you have a one to five scale on performance. So you're like a five on performance and like a letter scale for your trajectory at the company and your growth. So like you might be a five C, which would mean you're performing really well and like, and you're probably going to stay in this role because mm-hmm. you're, you know, a C is like pretty good. C's mm-hmm. in the middle. Uh, or like you're a 5A. 5A means you're performing super well. You're growing really what you're growing really fast. We'd love to give you more scope and you're likely going to get promoted to something. There's some nugget of wisdom in that sort of a system because it gives people a sense of trajectory, but it's kind of a, when I think about it from the recipient of something like that, it still feels kind of ambiguous in as much as it doesn't give me any sort of timeline towards when I'm actually going to get promoted. I imagine a lot of the times it's best to think about the ideal system. I think the ideal system is like a video game XP bar. You have all of the levels, they're all right there. It's like, oh, I just collected three XP on that thing. And it's like, oh, I'm 60% of the way there. I know that in order to get to 100%, I've got to complete these two quests and I need to kill a couple more monsters. And then like, and then I get to level 28 or whatever it is. I think that's the ideal scenario. There's no ambiguity. It's really easy to understand. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no misalignment because it's like in real time, right in front of your face. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's possible to have something like that in a work context, but I do think Working backwards from that as the ideal system with almost no ambiguity, 
how do we get something that's closer to that and mm -hmm. how it allows people to, uh, to recognize where they are and where they're going? Yeah. I think if we're able to break out the levels and put some general guidelines in around the years or like time that it would look like, and maybe it's time plus these certain competencies, like we want to see like absolute, like, you know, uh, like really solid competency and leadership before you're at a level five or six. Like we need to know like your leadership in the space externally or your leadership within the company around these things and sort of where that that works. Um, that could maybe potentially give managers more guidelines to be that explicit within performance review check-ins. Um, and I always I always think performance reviews should not just be about performance, but they should also be career check-ins. Like, do you even want to be here in five years? How can I help you like go somewhere else within five years? Um, because that's also a reality in a lot of cases too. Um, and that's not something you want to penalize in any way. So, you know, even knowing that I think is totally good. Um, so if you got that performance review and career check-in, and then maybe there's that like path forward or, or, you know, a really clear menu of sort, I don't want it to be checklisty, but like maybe there is a sort of like, I see you within three years, if you're able to master this skill or this programming language or um, this competency or show more EQ in this area, like these are the things I would want to see in order to feel like really confident recommending you for a promotion. Yeah. And then there is a level of like check-in or, you know, checklisty things, but keeping it nebulous to the fact that there is a little bit of, um, room for like serendipity or for them to like take on a different project that comes up that we can't predict. And so it fills in to some extent. Um, that's something I would, I think we could probably give guidance around and again, train the manager so that they feel confident in it. And then when we get cases of promotions coming up and then it does meet that, you know, seeing that through and having that communication and following through and, and really, you know, being able to live up to what that pathway look like from the manager promising it to the person delivering on it. I think that could, I think there's, there's probably a way to do that. And I think competencies or, and, and, you know, even talking about like the nebulous culture things of like, well, you're actually like attending and and living out these levels of values and you're doing podcasts and, and, you know, like there's things like that, that could even be worked in, you know, and again, it has to be genuine. It can't just be, I did it to do it. Um, so there's, no. there's that. I often come back to, to narrative as a really good way of solving these kinds of problems. It takes a lot more work on our end. It's a lot easier for people to model something than it is for us to come up with a checklist. So um, I included some examples in the doc. And one of the things that I really appreciate, and the, it'll be different in different roles. So like in engineering in particular, but this definitely applies to product, definitely applies to design. Uh, it applies all different parts of the organization, but it's, it's especially true in engineering, is showing active efforts to reduce scope and complexity. <laughs> yeah. And coming up with good examples of that is really important. Um, so I, I included one here that Maxine did on the case for canceling e-commerce. It's a really great example where she just said, hey, let's take a pause on this, figure out do we want to keep investing in this? We've already invested a lot. Can we reduce the scope of this? Um, and so things like ability to solve, uh, ability to solve systemic problems. 
which are people who can think up a level and who can solve, they solve the thing that's creating the problems. A good, I don't want to call it a bad example. It's just, this is a person who is a really good performer in his current role. And that's great. But he's somebody that I often need to check in with and I discover systemic problems in the org that maybe he hadn't recognized as a systemic problem and he just sort of accepted it for what it was. And it's not a bad variant of this is people who feel, um, I don't know if complacent is the right word, but they just aren't interested in fixing things. It's more like they just didn't think about it systemically. They were just yeah. like, oh, this is how I solve these problems. Um, and so this is somebody who is performing perfectly well in their current role. But if they wanted to move to the next level, you would need some evidence that they know how to solve systemic problems. They can think, they can see around corners, they can solve things one level beyond what they're currently operating on. For leadership roles that are like substantive leadership roles, uh, I think requirements around long form writing and strategy is probably something that I want to make explicit. I was talking with Scott about this. He said that it seems like the only form of thought that I really respect is writing. And I was thought, you know, yeah, that's probably right. <laughs> and even though it might just be a personal preference, I do actually think there is something to long form writing as a form of thought. But even if it's just a personal preference, it turns out like that is a reality. And so maybe we should just make that explicit. Mm -hmm. that people who will be in substantive leadership roles need to write. That is something that is important. Um, yeah. So coming up with these sorts of things and uh, things like conflict resolution, mm -hmm. people who do a really good job of managing conflicts between others, people who solve problems rather than create problems. Um, There's so many of these kinds of things and we can come up with a good narratives for each of them. Yeah. Well, like the, the podcast that Casey did with Jackie is a really good case study. I don't know if you've seen that one. But I haven't seen that one yet. I will look it up though, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Casey and Jackie did a podcast on giving direct feedback. Um, Casey was getting frustrated with some of the performance of, of Jackie. And Jackie just didn't realize this was even a problem. And Casey gave her some very direct feedback and totally changed their relationship. And now they work super well together. And uh, this actually is very similar to what Cosimo was saying around like, don't assume that people know that something's wrong. Yeah, yeah. You should just, you just have to tell them. So yeah. there's so many of these things. And I think coming up with narratives and stories is a much better way of showing people what good looks like yeah. rather than, uh, rather than coming up with these like quantitative mm -hmm. examples of like, an engineer ships this many lines of code and reviews this number of pull requests because that that can be that can be gamified in a way that I think solving this from like the the narrative sense uh, cannot. I like that. I think that the narrative examples also gives a version of predictability without making it prescriptive. Um, yeah, exactly. Because that is something you want, something that's somewhat subjective so that you don't introduce a lot of like personal bias where only the really 
present people or the really loud individual that's very good at promoting themselves gets recognized and then the more quiet personalities don't. Um, and that goes back to manager training too, of like making sure that you're thoroughly recognizing and, and looking through all the contributions. Um, but I love the idea because I, again, like I just don't like the very prescriptive 17 things to to prove your worth um, because I think that you want people to be way more creative than any list that someone or even 10 people could come up with. Um, so, okay, that's really cool. I think for sure um, I will... I want to think a lot more on that and then maybe get some examples and anonymize them or whatever and use current examples and maybe examples from other companies. And I'll talk to um, my plan from here on out for sure was to go and like talk to other managers. And I know um, I've got performance ratings as a like project to like tackle and review and that feeds into this and vice versa. And then manager training is also very like high on my list. And I've got some initial thoughts written down on like how to dive into that. But I think that also plays into this. Um, and then I want to, you know, of course, I chat a lot with Riley to make sure we can make sure that it fits in with comp and, and ranges and and that it's scalable as you, um, as people progress and as we are able to, you know, reward with compensation changes and things like that. Um, yeah, that's, I like that. Yeah. I think in terms of uh, most of the people here, will be, if you come, if you find good examples, people will be more than happy to do it in a way that is not anonymous and potentially even as a podcast or a video. Like awesome. um, Zach's delegation of the week this week. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it yet. I, yeah, I keep hearing it, but I haven't gotten to it yet. <laughs> that's amazing. And like, he is, he is somebody who before working here, I don't know if he's delegated anything before. And now he's like a delegation superstar. So it's uh it's really cool to see that. And that's that's something it is a it is a it is an undervalued skill of people who are in leadership roles is learning how to delegate. And it's a real skill that you have to learn. It doesn't just come naturally. Yeah. That would be awesome. I think sharing more examples. Um, I was going to say too, um, along with the long form writing requirement for leadership, um, examples like this and narratives, um, those things are going to be amazing for recruitment and I think retention and also for giving to candidates is like, we don't have a career ladder that's so explicit that we can share with you. But here's an example of like 50 different like toggle stories that you could read. And like, I think that would be encouraging. It's going to be more engaging people love stories um in general so i think that could be really cool as far as giving um candidates a sense of a pathway it doesn't have to be a specific pathway and i think we kind of want to attract the people that are a little more adventurous too versus like i want to be this particular title well we don't really want to attract people that want a specific title we want people that know they have a path but they don't necessarily need to be this exact word um, so that could be cool too, because I think that's another like culture test that could be um, helpful. Yeah, I think it is. And it's, um, I think in some ways, people mentally associate the title with some area of responsibility. And so mm -hmm. I have found some people where when we start the conversation with like, they want title X, mm -hmm. what they really mean is I want to make sure that I have enough scope to work with. And if we talk about how we do titles, I share the memo we have on it. They're like, yeah, totally fine. I don't care what's on my LinkedIn. What I care about is 
I want to make sure that I don't get pigeonholed into solving this one really small, tedious problem. I want to work on something bigger. Um, so yeah, totally agreed on that. Um, for, for each of these things here, I know offhand a ton of examples that we can create stories around. Um, I'm sure every person you ask at the company can yeah. come up with a story of somebody else that they've seen who's really done a great job with this. Um, yeah. So I wanted to do a little project around a side project, maybe. I loved the question from the culture survey about who exemplifies the values most and how. Oh, like, yeah. Would be such a fun like narrative and like adding that to the culture handbook because again it's sometimes hard to understand how to live out what it means to truly assume the best in others and or positive intent and a story around that or an example or the Casey and Jackie example like that shows so much more and I mean even when talking about the book difficult conversations we talked about Michael and Jack or Michael and John the concepts and so it's like this you know there's there's something to it so yeah I love that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think one of the things that I would also think about from your perspective is um, I imagine increasingly a big part of your role is going to be pulling these stories because um, we, we did talk about this a little bit in the conversation we had earlier around how do you celebrate people who do a really good job of uh, having difficult conversations, doing the hard things that people don't want to talk about, doing the really uncomfortable thing. Um, and figuring out a way of getting those people to do a podcast. Like when, when Casey told me about this conversation with Jackie and how great it was, I said, you've got to do a podcast, like really trying to get those stories more out into the open. And that might involve bringing in Haney and finding a contract writer. We used to do these everyone on content pieces, which we just still do occasionally, but that, uh, Ben did this with, uh, Campbell Barron, who's a YouTube content creator, where you probably saw that video series where he interviewed a bunch of people on the Levels team to talk about Levels culture. And that was super cool. And so finding ways of just extending that capability and getting these getting these narratives out there, I think is going to be really important because that's that makes it memorable. And it can make it clearer. Like one person comes to mind who is a really, a really high performer in so many things, but on one of these criteria that I mentioned is like a one out of five. Mm -hmm. And I think seeing this is what good looks like will cause this person to go like, oh, wow, I don't do any of that. Yeah, and that might be a moment of like, oh, maybe this is, I, I think with a lot of these things, having that narrative also gives you a path forward. And if they're not anonymized and they are real people, this yeah. person can say like, oh, the person who wrote this thing, the person who is a good example of this is Ms. Maybe I'm going to talk to Ms. Like, hey, how do you get better at that skill? What's the path forward here? I love that. Or how do I time manage to make those things happen? Um, yeah, totally. Like productivity sharing and all of that. That's so, that's so great. Um, yeah. Okay. That's really cool. And all of this is such great, like onboarding content and um, external content and all of that too, because um I mean, I think it really is true that like um, just from what I've seen, like some of the recent hires have been such strong, like culture values alignment just from what I've seen. And like, I mean, it's just but like, you know, it's, it's just incredible to see. And I think that that can get stronger the more content you have out there and the more explicit you are about those things. So, yeah, preferential attachment is uh, is an incredibly powerful force. Um, <laughs> yes. I think uh, I think Ian mentioned this on the podcast that he did with us on his path to joining the company. 
was, uh, I think he, he mentioned he listened to a podcast or saw a video and his wife said something like, I don't think you know this yet, but you've already joined Levels. <laughs> like some, something about him. He was going to join before he even realized that he joined because there was, it was just such a clear alignment in his values and how he wanted to approach problem solving. That, uh, like, yeah. that's, that is a really powerful force. It really is. And it's an amazing thing when you end up with, and we had this at Buffer, we had a lot of very avid fans that were just with us till the end and people who applied four or five times and like didn't right. get a role, but applied again and just were so eager. And, and that is a really special thing. And um, I mean, it just drives excitement within the company and outside of the company. And it's a very special thing to treasure. And you honor it by continuing to share those stories and, and keep that community engaged too. So I love that.